0: Matthew chapter 2 verse 13 let's read God's word this morning now when they had departed behold an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said rise take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you for Herod's about to search for the child to destroy him and he rose, he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, quote, out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Father, this is your word. It is good. We need it. And I pray this morning you would speak to us through it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I wonder if you've ever picked up uh, a book like halfway through. Or or you ever turned on a movie back when you'd watch cable and couldn't always decide to start at the beginning and it would be 30, 45 minutes, an hour in. And maybe you've not seen the movie or read the book before and you had to pick up in the middle of the story and try to figure out what's going on. When we read the Bible and we start in the New Testament, it's a bit like that. Because the New Testament writers are writing with this whole background knowledge and they're assuming that you are an ideal reader and you know it all. Uh, And that's often not the case for most of us. And even if we do know the Old Testament story, we've got to work really hard to go back and remember all the themes and the shadows and the types that the Old Testament introduced to us that then the New Testament writers are just going to pick up and build on and they're not always going to tell you the precise and exact meaning of what's happening here. And we hit this place in Matthew chapter 2 where we've gotten some story. We got some genealogy and then we get some story, right? We get some story about the birth of Jesus and we get some story about the wise men and Herod. And then we kind of hit these last three sections in chapter 2 that seem to go pretty quick. And their point seems to be that what prophets of old had written about the Messiah are being fulfilled in Jesus. Now the challenge we have is we've got to ask, what's the significance of that for us, what's being fulfilled, why is it being fulfilled, and why does that matter for us? We're going to look at three main things this morning. We're going to look at Exodus, we're going to look at exile, and we're going to look at Messiah. Those three words. And they correspond to the three sections of our text this morning. The first section, verses 13 to 15, mention the exile. Out of Egypt I called my son, there in verse 15. Now that's a quote from Hosea chapter 11 verse one, which is just plain and simple about the Exodus in the book of Exodus. The Exodus uh, was a time God miraculously saved his people out of hundreds of years of slavery in order to bring them, not just out of Egypt, but into a land he had promised them so that he could be their God and they would be his people and they would worship him alone and they would be a light to the nations, showing the world what the true God was really like. And the Exodus, the acts of the Exodus, what happened in the Exodus, that salvation, those miracles, became a template in the entire Bible for how God brought redemption. It became a template to where the Old Testament writers keep referencing back, it might just be by a word or a couple words, they keep referencing back what happened in the Exodus. In fact, the most repeated uh, quotation in the Old Testament is from Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 where Moses is kind of at this hard place and he says, God, just show me your glory. He says he hides them and, and as God passed by, he shows them like the back. He said, you can't see my face, but you, I'll let you see the back. And what we have recorded for us are words written down that say this, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This becomes the most quoted text all throughout the Old Testament. It's repeated over and over again, kind of as a nod back to God's redemption in Exodus. God's people, Israel, would have constantly looked back to Exodus as their defining moment. They would have looked at Abraham. They would have looked at the Exodus and said, God saved us. And you read the Psalms, and it says, you've saved us out of Egypt. Even generations have passed, and they would still say, you've saved us out of Egypt. So Matthew records this story of Jesus fleeing for his life to Egypt in order to sort of replay the story of Israel, who also fled for their life to Egypt at the end of Genesis when there was a famine. And Joseph being miraculously sent ahead because his brothers thought they had sold him into slavery and killed him and God sovereignly works this plan where he's actually in a place of power, what they had meant for evil, God had meant for good, and then he's able to provide for them so they don't die in a famine and so they flee for their life out of the promised land that God had promised them down into Egypt so they could have food. And then God had called his people hundreds of years later out of Egypt, slavery and all, in order to show them that he is like he says he is in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, that he is loving and faithful forever. But God's people in the Old Testament learned that slavery was not the only thing they needed to be saved from. Egyptian slavery was indeed awful, but even after they escaped, their problems seemed to follow them they continued to encounter challenges in their relationship with God because it turns out the problem was not primarily outside of them, it was inside of them. There's a spiritual reality happening underneath the exodus. God's people needed a new and a greater exodus, not just from slavery imposed on them by others, but they needed an exodus out of the slavery of their own hearts. And so by telling this story and by quoting Hosea 11.1 and saying, out of Egypt I've called my son, Matthew is alerting to his readers, a new exodus is here. And it's going to be infinitely greater than the first one. A new exodus is here. We move on to the next section and we pick up on this theme of exile. And you may say, how in the world do you know this is talking about exile? Well, the scripture that is quoted here in Matthew 2 verse 18, he tells us it's quoted by Jeremiah but it actually comes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. And it is written, uh, it's very close to Jeremiah 29, which you read earlier. And it's written to people. It's actually a chapter of hope. The little uh, man-made heading in my Bible says, the Lord will turn mourning into joy. And that's what it's about. God's telling his people, hey, there's hope coming. You're not going to be in exile forever. And then right smack in the middle of the chapter, you have this one verse of just lamentate grief, sorrow. That in the midst of exile, in the midst of their hope, there's still sorrow because Rachel, which is a personification, not literally a woman named Rachel. Rachel lived way back in Genesis and she died on the way to the promised land. That she figuratively through the people of Israel are weeping for the children of Israel who are being taken off because of the exile. They're being killed. They're being forced to enlist in military service and service in other ways of of Babylon and these other places they've been exiled to. And she's weeping because she's looking at the children, these generations of God's people. She's saying, what hope is there for them? And what Matthew sees in the story of, of Herod killing these male children, which this was not a massive region, but they still expect about the ages. there's somewhere between like 20 and 50 uh, children were, were killed here. And what Matthew sees in that story, the sorrow, the grief, the death, that was caused by Herod, reminded Matthew of the sorrow and the grief and the death that Jeremiah mentions in chapter 31, 15. And what Matthew sees is, again, a replaying of the story of the Old Testament. Is this grief of exile. Now, exile is a major theme in God's story. Because it wasn't just that they had been sent into exile at the, in the book of Kings, Exile actually begins in Genesis 3 as Adam and Eve are exiled from God in the garden. Then there's a sort of exile that even happens in the Exodus. They find themselves without a home, without a place as their slaves in Egypt. Then they're vulnerable to surrounding nations and eventually taken over and carried away by Babylon. It's kind of like what we said about the Exodus. Their problems seem to follow them. So not long after Joshua led Israel into the promised land, do we read the book of Judges, which ends by telling us that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now that's a long way from the excited commitment that we read about in Exodus 18 and 19, where God says, are you going to do all these words? And they enthusiastically say and shout, yes, we will do them. We will obey whatever you say. Just get us out of Egypt. And then just a few books later, we read in Judges, everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. That's a long way from where they started. The truth is, they could not remain faithful to God and love him supremely. Even after getting a king, they thought that would be the solution. And they further put roots down as a nation. We see the kingdom slowly spiral into more sin and suffering. Finally, God's warnings come to fruition. And his people are taken over and sent into exile out of their land. And it's in that context, Jeremiah was one of those people. It's in that context that Jeremiah 31 is written. And the exile was brutal and it was sad. And in Jeremiah 31 and 15, we see the words about a voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation. This grief, this sorrow over children being lost because of forced slavery and forced military service and death. But then even all the way in the first century when Matthew was writing to the people he was writing to, the people who were here when Jesus was born, they saw themselves as also living in exile even though they were in the land God had promised them. Exile had shifted from an external reality about geography to an internal reality of the heart. The rule of Herod reminded them that the exile wasn't really over. And the brokenness and sin of God's people had led, them to, had led to unimaginable suffering and sadness. And it's in Jeremiah chapter 31 that we read about hope in the midst of that sorrow. That there will be an end to exile one day. So those, those are the backstories that Matthew's, assuming you know, when you read Matthew 2, 13 to 15, he's assuming you have this hope for a new exodus. When you read uh, Matthew 2, verses 16 to 18, he's assuming that you view yourself as an exile of sorts, and you're longing for exile to end, and you're sorrowful. But then this last section uh, is kind of the key to the other two references. Because we need a new exodus, and we need the exile to end, but here we read this curious uh, fulfillment language, he doesn't say so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled. He uses the plural, the prophets. And then it's not a quote. And actually, if you search your entire Old Testament, if you have really cool Bible software and you search the entire Old Testament for those words, you will find them nowhere. And you say, that's why I don't believe the Bible. It said the prophets wrote it and the prophets never wrote it anywhere. So what, what does he mean? What do you mean the Old Testament never says anywhere that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene? Well, I think one of two things is happening. One is that there was a, an Old Testament expectation. This is why he uses the plural of prophets. There's an Old Testament expectation that when the Messiah came, he'd come from a pretty disgusting place. He wouldn't look recognizable as a king. He'd be despised. He'd be looked down on. He'd be too humble for you to recognize as God's anointed one to bring salvation. And so I think Matthew sees that Jesus being raised in Nazareth, Nazareth fits the bill. Nazareth was not at all looked upon with any sort of esteem or pride. It was almost a statement of ridicule. It was derogatory to say that someone was from Nazareth. So I think on the one hand, Matthew's saying, look, we know the Messiah's coming from a a place of ill repute, and he's from Nazareth, so he's fulfilling what the prophets said. But there's something else that's happening that you or I can't see in the text because we have English Bibles, I assume. But there's a little word play going on here with Matthew. Matthew's writing from a Jewish perspective to a Jewish audience. And there's a word in Isaiah 11, verse one, that talks about the hope, the Messiah, being uh, a branch from the stump of Jesse. In other words, a descendant from the royal line. Jesse was David's father and there'd be a branch that comes out. Now, the Hebrew word for branch and the word here for Nazareth sound ve- like almost identical to each other. And so uh, some scholars think what's happening here is he's saying, look, he's using this play on words that Nazareth could kind of mean like stick town, like it's out in the sticks, and then out of this stick town comes branch boy. Wait, 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 wait. We have a hope for a branch from Isaiah chapter 11. But I think either way you go and you try to read Nazareth and what he's doing and scholars disagree, I think either way we actually end up in Isaiah 53. I think we end up in Isaiah 53 because when we read the first few verses of Isaiah 53, we see the hope in Isaiah 53 two, for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. We have this branch terminology, but we also have, as you continue to read Isaiah 53, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men would hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So I think Isaiah 53 is where we're intended to end up. I think we're intended to see Jesus is fulfilling this Old Testament hope for a Messiah, even though he comes from a pretty crummy place. Now, when this Messiah comes, he's supposed to bring a new exodus. That's neat that you got us out of slavery, but I'm looking around as a first century Jew and it feels like we're right back here okay, exile supposedly over, we're back in our land, but boy, Herod's here and I'm still mourning because kids are still dying. Is there any hope for a Messiah that can give us a new exodus, that can end this exile? And Isaiah 53, I think, tells us. It says, he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him Stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. Do you see what's happening in Isaiah 53 verses four and five? What was the challenge of the exodus? It changed external realities without changing our hearts. But Isaiah 53 says that when this servant Messiah of God shows up, he's gonna be pierced for our transgressions. He's gonna bring us a deliverance that's not merely external, but that's from the heart. And what do we do with the sorrow of the exile? It says he bears our griefs and carries our sorrows. So Rachel, who's weeping with loud lamentation, Christ takes up those sorrows for himself. He's really living the story of Israel all over again to do it perfectly. And what's the biggest challenge of the exile it's not just that they weren't in the right geographic place it's that they had been exiled from the presence of god like genesis 3 so jesus has arrived to replay this exodus story but infinitely better rather than merely saving us from external slavery he's come to bring an exodus for us out of sin and into god's presence God certainly is like Exodus 34, 6, and 7. That's repeated all throughout the Old Testament. He he sure is uh, loving like that, and he shows it perfectly in Christ. Romans 5 says we see God's love displayed for us on the cross. He is absolutely faithful to us. So faithful, in fact, that at the end of Romans 8, it says nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. But we need Exodus 34, 6, and 7 to be true for us, not just Exodus. We need to know it's a reality, and Jesus has come to make it a reality for us. He's come to bring a much greater Exodus. But Jesus also steps into exile in order to end exile. He's arrived to a people who have been experiencing a never-ending exile. Jesus is also born under a foreign ruler, which is an interesting parallel with Moses, who led the people out of exile. He's immediately exiled to Egypt for his own safety. Then he's forced to be raised in Nazareth, which is a podunk town of a few hundred people with a bad reputation. But he steps into that kind of exile where just a few years old, and he's already moved all over the map for his own safety because he doesn't have a safe place to call home. And in the midst of that crazy story, he has arrived to lead us. But he's not just arrived to lead us to a different geographic location on the earth. He's arrived to lead us to a new location of our hearts. Back to the presence of God. And in him we have access to God himself. So what we see in Jesus, what Matthew's trying to get us to see in these three little sections here at the end of chapter two, that maybe we speed quickly by and we... Jesus of Nazareth, we maybe if you've read the Gospels, you know that, and you say, what does all that matter that he goes to Egypt and comes back? What a weird detail to say. Matthew's trying to trigger in you. Remember we talked table of contents last week? He's trying to trigger in you this knowledge. Hey, when you read Jesus' story, think new and greater Exodus. Think exile is over. But this would not be a sermon, would merely be a lecture if we didn't say, what does this mean for us? here's where we find ourselves. Freed by the Exodus, brought home to be with God. We follow the exile-ending Messiah as exiled people ourselves. First Peter is written to the exiles. There's a tension we face as Jesus' followers. Kind of alluded to it reading Jeremiah 29 earlier that there's an already-not-yet tension right? We've already been freed from our sin in Christ and we're not yet perfect and free from the pains and difficulties of this world. The already not yet tension of I'm here and it feels like this is my home in a way, but then I look around at the values and the virtues and the way of life of these people and this can't be my home. So there's just tension in the life of a Jesus follower. What, what do we do when we live in a world that doesn't share our love for Jesus? How do we live as exiles? The way Jesus lived as an exile, literally under foreign rule, there were times he confronted and there were times he loved and welcomed his enemies. And in the end, he died for them. This is exactly where we find ourselves. So, what do we do? I think a few things. First, a couple of quotes from some authors you will recognize. First, C.S. Lewis. He said, If we recognize in ourselves a longing that this world cannot satisfy, it only makes sense to think that we were made for another world. You all have longings. Desires, hopes, dreams. And it seems like whenever you get there, it doesn't quite satisfy the way you thought it would. And that longing grows, deepens, reaches out a little further than where you are, and you can never seem to scratch that itch. If we have these longings that seem to never be satisfied, C.S. Lewis says it only makes sense to think we weren't created for this world. Now, maybe you're more of a Lord of the Rings type of person than a Chronicles of Narnia type of person, so let's listen to C.S. Lewis's good friend, J.R.R. Tolkien. He says, we all long for Eden, and we're constantly glimpsing it. Our, our whole nature, at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most human, is still soaked with the sense of exile. It's so We are soaked with the sense of exile. We're soaked with the sense of, wanting our hearts to find rest somewhere, and being unable to do so. You can't escape the desire for rest and homecoming, because that's how you were created, to find your home with God forever. And when we are living in a world where that's not the reality externally, we're constantly pulled and torn apart. That's why we have anxiety and that's why we suffer because we're not home. So I think the first thing we can do is acknowledge the fact that we're not home. Acknowledge what Jesus tried to make a reality that we're not where we ought to be. This world is not the way it ought to be. That's Romans 8. It's groaning with the pains of childbirth because things are not the way it should be. And here's the beautiful part of the Bible. One aspect of the Bible that you don't have to convince anyone is true is that things aren't the way they should be. That's like Bible 101. Things are not the way they should be. And I think everyone on earth would acknowledge that. Things are not the way they should be. And we call it exile. We call it sin. We call it a need for a greater exodus. So can we just admit and confess with Christ today? that we're in exile and we don't always know what to do here. I think another thing we can do is we can be active participants like Jeremiah 29, faithfully loving and helping and working for the welfare of our cities, just like Jeremiah put it. That's, I think, following the way of Jesus. I mean, think about Jesus' statement about paying taxes. He's like, yeah, do it. I don't know, that's fine. You know? And it had to be kind of a shock to some of his followers, Right? Like, wait a minute, I thought you were the one in all authority and you're telling us to honor the authority of this foreign ruler, but this is the promised land. Like, how does all this work? What kind of authority do you have, Jesus, if you're going to keep making us pay taxes? I think Jesus is saying, like, look, you live here in this world. I have a kingdom that's so great, it's not going to overthrow Herod right now. Uh, I'm going to come one day and establish a whole new system of authority on this earth. And there will be no more tears, no more oppression, no more abuse, no more pain, no more sin But now you can actually faithfully love and help those you're exiled among because they're in exile too. And what's sad about our neighbors and friends who are in exile and don't know it is they keep trying to make a home out of this world that they can never really make a home out of. So I think we can be active participants with Jesus following his example to love those around us. But we also must remember while we're trying to be faithful here that this place is not our home. I think we've got to, figure out ways and rhythms to healthily detach from the world around us. Because by living here, there's always that temptation that we're gonna make this place our ultimate love, make this place our idol, make this place our identity, and we're gonna adopt the patterns of worship of this place. So we can faithfully participate in things like politics while while remembering that it's not ultimate. We can sign our kids up for sports and extracurriculars while also remembering we don't have to make our whole lives revolve around our children. They're not ultimate. God is. So we can engage in the rhythms of this world but also have a healthy, deep breath, calmness about us because our identity does not rise and fall on the things of this world. And that in itself will be a witness, especially in this community, right? I think the last thing we can do is we can gather with other Jesus followers in communities called churches to remember that our true home is with God, to celebrate who God is in singing and in preaching and in fellowship, to pray together, to help one another, serve one another, and correct and encourage one another. If you want to remember that this world is not our home as it is right now, but that Christ has come to lead us in an exile out of this into what Hebrews 11 calls the city of God, a city from heaven, It says, the people in Hebrews 11, it says, died in faith because they didn't get what they were looking for. The city of God. If you want to remember that, keep gathering here on Sundays. Gather with others who come in the door exhausted and groaning, who come in still wrestling with sin, who come in still not having the right answer, but who all of us go, you know what? We're going to come in here and look at our King Jesus and say, things aren't always going to be that way. This church right here is an outpost of the kingdom of heaven at 3662 Shalford Road. Now we might be in the country of the United States of America. But we fly a different flag here. Like, yeah, we're under the jurisdiction authority of the president and the government here, but, but we gather here and we kind of give a wink and a nod and say, but not Really? we serve a king that's so much greater and i need to be reminded of that hey i need to be reminded i don't serve the king of my kids successes or my kids academic achievements i need to be reminded that i don't serve the the idol of a larger house and a few more square footage and and a little bit nicer of a car that doesn't have crayon markings in the back windows Like I don't serve at the idol of getting the newest stuff or a TV in different rooms and it's like just having one is okay, but is it really okay? But like we could distract more kids if we could put more kids in front of different TVs uh, all at the same time and and I need a few more. Like I I can sit in my life as it is totally not put together the way that I wish it was. (sighs) Take a deep breath and say, Jesus, you're leading me out of this. Not by giving me more of what I'm asking for, but my bringing me home to god himself and recognizing with augustine who lived 1600 years ago and says our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you let's pray god this is a hard text and i hope i did that right um we're looking at Jesus coming and we're recognizing he's fulfilling all these Old Testament stories. And God, sometimes it's just hard to apply to ourselves. But I rest knowing that your word never returns void and that your power to work it into our hearts is way greater than my power to communicate it. And so God, I just wanna rest on that today. I wanna rest on the fact that we come to this text and walk away from this text knowing we are needy people. I need a greater exodus. I don't just need my circumstances to change, God. Because my problems will follow me around. But Jesus, thank you for showing up to lead us into a new and greater exodus, saving us from slavery to sin, into the freedom of being children of God. Jesus, thank you for, on the one hand, letting us admit that we're in exile, letting us admit that, goodness, if I've got to make a heaven out of this place at this time, whew, So it's free, Jesus, this morning, it's freeing to say, this is not my home the way it is right now. But I can say that in hope and in peace because Christ, you have promised to lead us into an eternal home with you forever. Jesus, thank you that you embraced the story of coming from a no-name backwoods town. There was nothing about you that would have made us take a second look and say, you must be the king. Nothing. I mean, Isaiah 53 predicts it. Being from Nazareth confirms it. There is nothing about you that we would have taken a second look and said, no, you've gotta be the one. You weren't beautiful or majestic or glorious. You, you were born to be rejected, Jesus. Christ, what humility that must have taken to be the eternal son of god sharing in perfect glory with the trinity for all eternity and be born to a virgin raised as an adoptive son to an adoptive father in a backwoods no-name town so that you could bring salvation to the world through your death on the cross and resurrection from the dead Jesus, I'm so glad you did that. I pray that that would be real to us this morning. Thank you for showing your love to us in your life, death, and resurrection. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.